I actually don't go home to Salt Lake all that often. And I was there last week. And I noticed on a lot of the interstate signs, a beehive. Utah is the beehive state. That's why there's beehives everywhere. The beehive always stood for a place where women never went first. Men were in control. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because I am, you know, running a business that I founded where our logo is the beehive. But it's a company where women go first. Women are in control. I've been interviewing Whitney Wolf Hurd since 2015, back when she was just Whitney Wolf, a 25-year-old who had recently started a little company called Bumble. For those of you who aren't on the dating apps, Bumble lets you swipe left or right on a picture of a potential match, except in the beginning, only women could make the first move. Since its founding, Bumble has expanded from being a dating platform into a way to find everyone from friends to mentors, with strict rules to prevent harassment. Wolf Herd once described it to me as Facebook, but for people who don't know each other yet. In 2021, Wolf Heard became the youngest woman ever to take a company public, and she's now one of the only women running a major tech company that she founded herself. The tech world is full of stories of male founders who seem indifferent to the consequences of what happens on their platforms, but Wolf Heard seems to be attempting to take real responsibility for how people behave on her app. And that has big implications for how we all treat each other online and off. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. We talked about the relationship between tech and loneliness, the demise of the so-called girl boss. Plus, is Whitney Wolf Heard considering running for governor one day? I mean... The first time we spoke, you reached out to me right after Bumble launched because I want to say it was a roommate or a friend that was using Bumble. Yeah, somebody was using it. And it was just getting going and you covered it when not a lot of people were all that interested because it just hadn't really gone anywhere. And then you were actually there at our IPO day. And so I feel like you've just had such an interesting front row seat to so many different stops along this journey. Yeah. So, okay, I want to start at the very beginning because uh, this is a show about what shapes the people who shape our world. So we've got to get under the hood and start really at the beginning. So tell me what it was like. Um, You've told me that you kind of grew up in a, a little bit more of a conservative community when it came to gender roles. Your family wasn't Mormon, but you lived in a Mormon area. Um, So how did that influence your approach to kind of thinking about men and women and the roles that they sort of are often put into? So in high school, I felt torn on my identity. I had a Jewish father and I had a Catholic mother. And I always kind of felt like a... um, outcast in whatever community I was in. Because when I was the Jewish girl, I wasn't actually Jewish because my mother wasn't Jewish. When I was the Catholic girl, I wasn't Catholic because I had a Jewish dad. When I was in Salt Lake City outside of the Jewish or Catholic communities and in the general community, which was Mormon, I was the outcast because I was Jewish and Catholic. So I never really fit anywhere. And 
in high school, I think this desire to fit in and this desire to be worthy or accepted or seen led to a very toxic relationship. Um, It was a really unhealthy relationship, very emotionally abusive. Oh my God. Yeah. I can only imagine. So literally my weekends as a high schooler were controlled. Leaving my house was controlled by my boyfriend as a high school girl. And that's awful. Yeah. And that's not the worst of it, right? That's just the the high level um, framework. So I was led to believe that I was useless, um, hideous, alone, and would never be anything in the world without this person and without their approval and without their permission. And I thought that was normal. I just thought, oh, this is what having a boyfriend is like. But deep down in my soul, I knew that was not right. And I would cry myself to sleep. I would agonize. I would want my life to end. But here I am, a young girl. And I thank God, by the grace of my mother, basically forcing me to go to college, I ended up going away to Texas. And when I got to college, I felt liberated and empowered. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm free. I don't have to ask someone what I'm allowed to wear. But wait, I'm not because I'm not allowed to text a guy first. I'm not allowed to make the first move. The text had to come from the boy or the guy or the man, whatever you want to call it. And again, this same deep-rooted feeling in me of the this is not right, this is broken, reemerged. And I realized pretty quickly that this was bigger than just a high school relationship. This was pervasive and this was widespread and this was culture and this was how the rules had always been written. So you left Tinder in 2014 and then filed a lawsuit in June of that year alleging that you were discriminated against based on your gender. What was that time in your life like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, where to begin? So much of it was so exciting and so inspiring and so motivating, but so much of it was so soul-crushing and so toxic and so um, tragic. And it's taken me literally almost a decade to recover emotionally from that chapter. It really did almost kill me. But you know what? At the end of the day, I guess this this is my calling in life. Like, I am so deeply motivated by helping that woman wherever she is come out of something bad and into something good. Like I live for healthy relationships. That's why I keep going to work. I don't need to work at this point. I do it because Mm -hmm. I'm deeply driven by the mission. So given that Bumble is based in Austin, Texas, a state that's now criminalized a lot of women's health care, I want to ask you about the Dobbs decision. You know, the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe versus Wade about a year ago. What are your thoughts on how that's changed abortion access across the country? I think it's horrifying. So horrifying that I even, I would be the worst at this ever probably, but I literally was like, do I need to run for governor of this state to go fix this? Are you considering that? No, I I can't. I mean, there's no way. I, I can barely function. First of all, no one would vote for me, but 
I think that it is so horrifying that I just want to do something to fix it. I want to do something to fix it. And I want to support women that are struggling with the near-term circumstances of this. So I think this is a one-two step. I think there's a lot of women out there doing a lot to just raise funds right now in the immediate term to help these women that are currently, as we speak, trying to drive across borders and drive to the last standing Planned Parenthood or to the person that's willing to help them. because. The reality is between here and whatever years from now to get this fixed, there's a lot of people that are going to suffer on the way. So helping them is absolutely critical. And then the second thing is we have to change the structure. We're just going to have to change the system. And the way we do that is voting people in that will change the system. And I wish someone would vote for me because I would feel I, I would go and fix it if I could. But I don't have that power right now in front of me. But I'm trying to go down every different path I know to hopefully arrive at a different outcome. So, okay, but, you know, you're no stranger to political advocacy. I mean, you've uh, been pushing legislation to punish people who send lewd photos unsolicited. You've been at the forefront of getting rid of anti-cyber flashing in the UK, outlawing stealthing, which is, you know, removing a condom during sex without consent. Um, You personally testified in Texas in support of a bill. And it's a law now. Yeah, that is now a law about sending unsolicited nude photos. So, How seriously are you considering this political office thing? Because I can actually think of a lot of people who are serving in office right now who have a lot less experience than you do. I mean, I haven't given it actual real thought. I just, I'm the type of person that I want to fix something. Look what my career has been made of. Problem, solution. Problem, solution. And if it's not me then who's going to go do it? And that's the way I've always looked at it. It's like, unless there's someone else I can point to that's doing it. I think there's a lot of people that are very intelligent and very experienced that should run before I do. Much better suited folks on a series of fronts. I don't have enough experience in that category. But candidly, like if no one else does it, I'm going to do it because someone needs to go and change this. We certainly cannot just sit and accept this, right? I mean, really? Like, why? Yeah. It's, so it's not So you're fair. saying if nobody, else, if nobody else competent runs for governor. Okay, no. You might consider <laughs> doing it. Okay. I'm certainly not committing to anything, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. First of all, I do not think I could win at something like that. If someone told me you can win and you can get in there and you can fix this very horrible situation for women, would I do it? Yes. But I don't, you know, I probably have bigger impact just running my business and there's a lot we can do. Like we can go and try to advocate for laws where we feel things are unjust. We can do these things. And I intend to do a lot more of them over time. And so I think my future is really leading with the why and the original kind of intention of the business and then figuring out ways to enact change to actually make sure the intention is matched with reality, right? I think this is this is a risk I face and I need to be real about this with anyone. I, you know, I'm a very transparent person. Wanting something to be a certain way is different than something actually being that way, right? So we have mm-hmm. to really make sure that everything we're trying to do lands and we have to consistently and constantly improve. So it's a work in progress, all of this. So 
I want to talk about Bumble and how you built it and what it does in the world. And you really seem to feel a sense of responsibility towards your users that a lot of the men who start these companies just don't seem to feel. And it seems like you've built this entire platform in order specifically to address toxic behavior. So why is that? Well, that's been my North Star. This is the foundation of why this company exists. Actually, before Bumble was Bumble, before it was going to be a dating app and all this stuff, Bumble started as a concept and idea called Merci. Merci Hmm. was a girls and women only. This was obviously before, this is back in 2014, before, you know, the broader conversation around gender. So had I been thinking about it today, it would have been much more inclusive from a gender and non-binary standpoint. But the concept was essentially this. When I left Tinder, I was on the receiving end of a lot of hateful behavior. I was getting death threats, rape threats, you name it. And I was already in a very, very fragile place, given what I was going through as a 24-year-old. I was unwell. I was not okay. Um, And so then to have my phone feed me toxic, hateful rhetoric all day long, it it about took me down. Um, It really did almost end me. I remember thinking, I need to stop feeling sorry for myself. I have a roof over my head. I have a boyfriend who loves me. I have my health, more or less. And there's a lot of people out there that don't. There are 13-year-old girls right now that are being bullied at school and on their phones. And so Merci was essentially going to be what I was going to do after Tinder. That was going to be my next move. And the way Merci was going to work, it was all about a positive social network. That was it. That was the pitch. A positive social network. This was unheard of at the time. This had never been done or even marketed in any way out there. And the long and the short of it is it spiraled into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and turned into Bumble. So to think about this in 2014, when now, almost 10 years later, we have all these studies about how damaging social media is to mental health, particularly for teenage girls. We've seen how sort of unchecked algorithms on social media can lead to toxicity that can like be so intense that it threatens democracy. It can threaten the fabric of society. So do you feel like in some ways you were a little bit ahead of your time in seeing the potential impact of these toxic social platforms and trying to build one that was designed differently? I think just from a matter of fact standpoint, I think it's the case. I mean, you would get kicked off and we will... We will hold you accountable. And no, this stuff doesn't fly. And no, you have to be who you say you are. Accountability has been, you know, an anchor of this entire business from day one. But it's it's just absolutely fascinating to see what happens when you don't fix things soon and early and and at the at the beginning, right? So I think a lot of the things I saw bubbling up in 2014, who could have predicted what would happen during a pandemic with vaccines or an election. It's absolutely frightening to see what has happened with misinformation. It's really shocking. And I think that we can turn it around by instituting better standards and better behavior and actually holding people accountable. But it can't just be Bumble off here, like waving their arms. I think it needs to be everyone. We need to be a united front. 
we should all be marching towards a solution. And I think the biggest issue here, Charlotte, is the business models. We don't benefit from people staying in our app for the rest of their lives and spending 100 hours a week on our app. That's not what we're here to do. Candidly, our entire mission is to get you on and off the product as quickly as possible because we want you to meet people. We are shifting to an entirely different topic, but similar and related. We are in an epidemic of loneliness. Yeah. So what, what do we do about that? Well, first of all, people need to connect. And I don't mean connect through their phones. People need to connect. Community and connection are the foundation of our existence. And loneliness is killing us. So many of these other problems that we're seeing throughout our society is a huge derivative of loneliness and disconnection. And it is lonely being in my business position. It is. I don't have a lot of people to call. I don't have a lot of people to lean on. And not a lot of people can relate to the day-to-day swings. Um, So that feels super lonely. And so um, I feel lonely a lot. And I think it's actually good to feel lonely for me because I can empathize with our customer. So speaking of the loneliness epidemic, there's a lot of people arguing with a lot of data behind them that the rise of technology and the accessibility of technology is what has created this loneliness epidemic. So why would technology also be the solution to the problem? Both statements are true. Go look at how the majority of these social products are incentivized. How do they make money? How do we get you to click on stuff? Out of what? Either envy, fear. We have to prey on actual human emotions to get you to do stuff. If they need to make money through clicks, well, then something's got to give. And the thing that unfortunately has had to give is health, wellness, sanity, ethics. We have taken a different approach. Right. Our value is in getting you off of our app and meeting in real life. So if technology has created loneliness, how can technology end it? The reality is people are sitting at home on their phones all day long. What is it to use one more product to hopefully meet someone and get off of your phone? We want you off of your phone. More with Bumble founder and CEO Whitney Wolf Heard when we come back. switch gears for a second because there are non-binary users on Bumble. There are trans users. The app can be formatted to accommodate all gender identities. But Bumble originally started as a place where women could make the first move. And it was about trying to make dating apps like safer and more comfortable for women. And since then, a lot has changed about the way people think about gender and the gender binary. And so I'm wondering if you're how you're thinking about that, given that there's so much um, rethinking of the gender binary right now. 
it's something that we take very seriously and is deeply rooted in the future roadmaps of this business. A woman going first was really never about putting one gender ahead of the other. Not only that, but men have faced so much rejection because of rules imposed on everyone. If one man is meant to always go first and women are meant to kind of be demure and play hard to get and be, you know, not too interested, all these rules that have been imposed on us, how does that dynamic play out? And so you now have this broken rejection stream of man goes first, woman gets inundated, woman doesn't really respond because there's too many first moves. So a big piece of a woman making the first move, not only was it about my personal journey and wanting to recalibrate the way a woman was treated in her relationships, it was also to stop this cycle of rejection and abuse and toxicity. Right. And the way we knew how to do it at the time was through a woman going first. But the beauty of where we are today has unlocked a lot of new ways to achieve the same goal of making sure anyone that identifies as a woman is still in control and is still, you know, in the driver's seat of their lives. But does gender have to be the way to do it? So one other thing that's happened over the course of your time running Bumble is that I feel like there has been a real girl boss cycle. And I know that that's a controversial term, but, you know, in the 2014, 2015, 2016 period, there were lots of women running these really buzzy companies. And then one by one, many of them imploded. They lost control of their companies. And you're one of the last people from that kind of cohort standing. And so I'm wondering, why do you think it has been so tough for these other women to maintain control of these companies that they built? Well, goodness, it makes my soul like shatter Uh, when we say I'm the last one standing of this group of women that worked their, you know, entire 20s or 30s, whatever it was, and broke through barriers that had never been broken through before. They had raised capital that was unheard of, and they had hired and scaled teams that was history-making, yet they're gone. That's not something we should be proud of. And I'm not saying they're all perfect. I don't know. I mean, maybe some of them did make mistakes, but guess what? People make mistakes. Men survive and women don't. Yeah. What do you think of Elizabeth Holmes? I honestly am so disappointed. My dad bought me the Inc. magazine and I still have it. I think it said something like, this woman's the next Steve Jobs. And I remember I was like six months into building Bumble and I was still super depressed post-Tinder. I was feeling so down. I was like, how am I going to make it? This feels impossible. How am I going to do this? And my dad sent it to me with a note that said like, believe in yourself. Here's someone to look up to. Like finally, like it's a woman on a cover of a magazine, right? right? It was like so cool to see that there was a woman that had done it and had made it. And it became that like, wow, well, if she could do it, we can do it. And then look what she did. And that's just so disappointing and so horrifying that that is what we have to look to. People doing bad things deserve consequences, man, woman, or otherwise, right? So I'm certainly not saying like, oh, we should forgive someone because they're a woman. But I don't think we should be proud that there's a bunch of young women out there saying, quote unquote, the girl boss era is dead. We don't want to start companies. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. Women are held to different standards. And so... Coming back to this gender conversation, 
I'm a huge advocate for equality for all. There are too many studies to name that if we do not advance equality for women, we actually shudder the hope of equality for anyone else, any other minority community. And I think we've seen this in our politics too. And so the unfortunate reality is that until we view genders as equal, your answer was going to remain incredibly open-ended and frustrating, right? Like there's, there's not a good answer outside of we have to create equality. And my big stance and swing in the world is that equality is achieved through better relationships mm-hmm. because you don't have equality in the boardroom or in the cap table or in the office or anywhere else in the world until you have equality at home in whatever relationship you want to be in. And so until we normalize healthy relationships, healthy love relationships, healthy friendships, how do we expect society to change at all? So we've talked all about your business and your success and your future, but I want our listeners to learn a little bit more about you, Whitney, the human. So with that in mind, now it's time for our final round of questions, the last segment of our interview. It's called The Last Time. Cool. Okay. When is the last time you made a new friend? Recently, actually. I made a new friend recently, and she is lovely. Who was it? Um, She's a neighbor, and we have kids the exact same age, and it has been really nice to meet someone through— a very common thread that is children. It's fun. Yeah. It's it's great because you don't feel bad if you're distracted because they're also distracted. That's exactly it. When is the last time you bought your kids a new toy? Uh, actually yesterday, which sounds gluttonous, but it just happens to be the day that we went and did it. And I got my little one is obsessed with going vroom, vroom with little cars. And he's only ever been able to use his brother's car. So I finally got him his own first car, like tiny little (laughs) toy car. And the big one got a Spider-Man book that talks to you. So that's pretty cool. (laughs) I'm sure they love those. I'm sure they're obsessed. Oh, yeah. Okay, when's the last time you Googled a mystery illness? A long time ago. I used to be a hypochondriac, like really bad, where I was Googling mystery illnesses Mm -hmm. all day, every day. But I've just tapped into like a different energy source that has reduced some of these day-to-day neuroses Hmm. and anxieties. Okay. When's the last time you downloaded an app and what was it? Yesterday. I deleted and re-downloaded Bumble because I wanted to see the user flow at one particular place for an AI feature. And I deleted it, re-downloaded it. Okay. When's the last time you had a sweet treat? I think I ate some type of cinnamon cereal leftover thing that my mom gave to my son yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yum. Congrats. Go me. (laughs) Um, Okay, Whitney, thank you so much for being here with us. It's always so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. You can check out my other interviews with Whitney Wolf Heard on our show page at time.com slash person of the week. Thank you for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. 
So send us your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweekattime.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Bob Mallory. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. This episode was fact-checked by Nicole Pasulka. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the executive producer of Audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.